Welcome to the Rationalist Podcast. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack, and I'm with the impregnable Eddie Matthews. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's so today is going to be our first actual podcast after last week's introduction, and we're here to talk about social media and its impact on society and politics. <laughs> Uh, Morgan, I heard you do an incredible Australian accent. Do you want to do you want to give a preview of that for our viewers? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you a little sneak peek just in case. Uh, you know, you never know. There might be some some Australians out there that are that are a fan. Um, but yeah, okay, here you go. It's uh, about as popular as a snake in a sleeping bag, am I? <laughs> you nailed it, my friend. <laughs> actually me i have my friend here steve who's actually australian so that was uh I'm i want to take i want to take 20 seconds of your time to pitch an idea that johnny pickett and i came up with and mm-hmm. it's the idea um and listeners if you want to take this and run to it with it with any city that you're in anywhere mm-hmm. in the world it can be done anywhere it's this idea of bad impersonation night and you, you know, at a local pub, local bar, wherever you are in the world, you create an event centered and celebrating bad impersonations. So the idea is that if you do any impersonation and it's awful, you will be applauded on stage. And so you have a set list of people who sign up to do uh, a Jersey accent or a Brooklyn accent. Clearly... Those were, ex- those were exactly the same. <laughs> this is the point of bad impersonation night. I would be a king of it because those are all that I have. Um, and the idea is like if you actually like legitimately do an incredible impersonation, you're booed off the stage. This is not for that. It's not for you to like shine with your <laughs> – Morgan, you would be perfect for this event. I'm a little offended that you bring this up. <laughs> this popped into your mind after my Australian. Oh, it has nothing to do. Nothing. Nothing. Not you booed. You would have been kicked out the door. We'd have. Okay, we would have. We would have had the bouncer sick on you. Um. So yeah, if uh, listeners, if you want to take that and run with it, um, and feel free to invite me. I'll show up if it's um in my vicinity. Um, so Morgan, why don't you, uh, tell us about a little bit about who you are and your research, uh, career as it stands right now. Some, maybe something you're working on currently. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, like I mentioned last time, I'm a first year PhD student at the university of Washington. I study primarily comparative politics, political economy, and some methodological frameworks. Uh, I'm interested in sub-Saharan Africa and a number of developing regions, particularly post-conflict states, and the ways in which development structures and kind of technology interact. Um, so this is, a, this is a great topic for me. I find it extremely interesting. I'm working now with... Uh, one of my classes, so our, our structure of our class is a bit different. We have to take a few years of classes before we do our dissertations, but I'm working on kind of applying a collective action perspective to development systems and nonprofits in 
post-conflict states and seeing the ways that inefficiencies develop just based on kind of market structures um, rather than any sort of, you know, malfeasance on behalf of, of the preferences or the treatment of individuals. Um, yeah, that's, that's me. And I think I have a very mm, expansive interest in how technology has redefined how we think about development and how we think about social interaction more generally, especially across um, different areas and different regions and how these sorts of transformative technologies are interpreted and how they can interact with political structures more generally. And how about yourself? Um, Yes, I'm going to do a PhD in creative writing at Swansea University. Swansea, based in South Wales, I'll be moving to Mexico, uh, Tijuana specifically, uh, in a couple months because that's the area of research, part of the world that I'm looking at. Um, So, yeah. Has anyone yeah. ever moved from Swansea? To Damn, T1 that's a really in, in the history. That's of such time? a good question. Wow, that maybe I'll maybe I'll do a little investigative reporting and come back in six months and see. There's not like a huge uh, like diaspora of, of Welsh citizens in Tijuana just over the man. Border. I hope I find it. Their their pasty skin will be fried red. I can tell you. <laughs> I'll see. I'll see them from a mile off. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, the more, so basically the creative writing, your dissertation, the, the lion's share of it, um, is a creative work. So in my case, it's a novel, uh, set 20 years in the future on, uh, the border. So it's in San Diego and Tijuana and kind of that border region generally. Um, and the more that I've kind of drilled into this, the more I've kind of found myself thinking about identity and how people identify themselves and, um, so Twitter especially is like really good shorthand for the way people, I think, conceptualize their thoughts in a really short format and also the identity that they want to kind of, that they want to be their public facing self. And um, just kind of in, investigating, I guess, the continuity or discontinuity uh, between those things, you know, for, for today in a Twitter context is something that's interesting. But in terms of uh, my research, I think it's kind of more broadly trying to look at literature as a redemptive force, um, not in like a cheesy hallmark, you know, or even liberal progressive way in the sense of we're going to pat ourselves on the own back by being creative artists and hating Trump, but in a way that like I'm, I'm writing a paper right now, um, an academic article that is looking at um, one of Dostoevsky's novels, Notes from Underground, and um, one of Jorge Luis Borges' short stories, mm-hmm. uh, Tolon Ukbar Tertius. Um, I'm butchering the name of that, but I'm sleep-deprived. So <laughs> it's like, I had this idea for an article, and I'm going to present a paper on it. And then um, shout-out to Very Bad Wizards, because them talking about those two stories, I think, was kind of the connective tissue I was looking for to conceptualize this academic article. So what I'm talking about is that I, in this article and kind of, I guess more broadly, I'm looking at how literary fiction, I'm treating it almost like a mental simulation in a sense of like a story invites you into its world. It controls all the variables 
and is just this immersive experience and like letting yourself as a reader be taken along for that and then hopefully be transformed by it and not propagandizing anything to you, but allowing you to hopefully introduce more nuance into whatever you think about this issue or about any kind of like major societal issue in its time. So it's really just about what we're trying to do on this podcast, ask the right questions and continually ask the right questions and not necessarily try to, um, I don't know, just purport all these answers that maybe at this moment in time we think are the right approach. But I mean, who knows, like as the world changes and progresses, if that's even the right thing. So perfect. Well, branching from that, I mean, you mentioned the idea of kind of allowing people to express nuance do you feel like Twitter or whatever social media you prefer, but specifically Twitter with its word limits and character limits, restricts this? Or do you think it kind of acts as an access point to articles and ideas of thought for the greater society that allows for this kind of nuance? Yeah, I think it's a good question because Twitter's really, really good at what Twitter does which is not like nuance is not Twitter strength and it was never designed to be Twitter strength. And so it's kind of like a weird, it's like you could say Einstein's not a great swimmer. It's like Einstein, we weren't looking for him to be Michael Phelps. Speak for yourself. You know, like speak for yourself. (laughs) I have no idea if Einstein could swim or not. Um, Maybe he was a phenomenal swimmer, but it's just the idea of like, Criticizing Twitter for a lack of nuance is a strange criticism, but it's also warranted in this era, which is kind of a paradox. So what I also think is a paradox is that expanding Twitter, I don't know, was it early, maybe late 2017 when they expanded it from um, 140 to 280 characters? I think that actually like crippled some of what Twitter was good at and in the thought of like, hey, we're going to allow you twice the space so that people can expand their arguments more and uh, and introduce more nuance, I think it's, I don't think it's help because I just don't think that that is what Twitter's supposed to be about anyways. Like, I think that there's something nice to the concise 140 characters where it doesn't feel like a ramble. Now you get like a 280 character saying and it feels like rambly and you get bored and it's only like four sentences i mean you uh, you don't think nuance can be successfully applied in 140 characters that's unbelievable (laughs) i mean i agree i think most of the people have reacted that way i've heard the way that twitter has spoken about it is that it's it's more about introducing ways of like a greater extension of other articles is kind of a more nuanced introduction to greater ideas. But yeah, I I haven't heard many people that have said that that expansion has really solved any of the problems and has probably created more than it's solved. Uh, But I don't want to get too much off on a tangent. Do you want to talk about just social media's impact on society or how about you give us a brief overview? What do you think social media's impact on creative writing or the publishing industry has been? Do you think it's been generally good or bad, or do you think it's somewhere in between? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think it's been good for creative writers because it allows them to have like a little bit of a personality 
and to have like a way of interacting with readers in a really timely format, um, which is great. And you can kind of, you know, if there's a writer that you like, um, their presence on Twitter is just like an added bonus, I think, to following their career. So you don't have to wait three years, you know, for their next book to come out to kind of get an insight into how they are thinking about, you know, this major life event or, you know, this occurrence in the Middle East or, you know, or, you know whatever they, whatever their specialty is. Um, so I think that's really positive. Um, then the drawbacks, I don't, maybe, maybe drawbacks are kind of just the other side of that same coin where it's like this writer who's really good at talking about this one thing has no business talking about feminism because they don't have, they don't know anything about feminism, you know, or just like, it's maybe it's detracting some of their expertise and they kind of wade into waters that not because I don't think that, you know, because to, to take that feminism example, not because male writers can't talk about feminism, but it's kind of like when actors like talk at length, not super articulately about their political beliefs where it's like, you're, you were good in Wolf of Wall Street. Why should we care about? I'm not talking. I'm not calling out Leo specifically, but just, um, but it's just kind of like, okay, so why should we care what you think about this thing? But, um, I think that we have to just because there needs to be a hierarchy in Twitter because we need to, you know, there needs to be rise voices that kind of rise to the fore. Um, so it all just kind of gets muddled in terms of does this person have like a good bearing, like something to offer to this issue? Or is this just some prominent writer, some prominent person airing, like espousing some belief that they have based on 10 minutes of reading, half reading some article, you know? Yeah, no, I I mean, there are definitely, it's been interesting to see the public kind of come full circle in the hopes and kind of failures of social media. I think with starting around the time of the Arab Spring, everyone was pretty kind of ebullient about the potential of social media to transform not just American society, but kind of the globe for good. I think with the whole Cambridge Analytical breakdown and the continual malfeasance of Facebook's executives and their platform... I think we've kind of seen that come back around when I think if you mention social media and politics or society, it's almost immediately seen as a negative. Um, and I, I don't think either of those is necessarily correct. I think that the structures and the systems governing social media can be seen as kind of normatively, normatively good or bad, but that social media as a whole is like any other technology kind of a blank slate, yeah. maybe even more so than many technologies. Yeah. I think that the way it's been used and the way that we haven't really adapted to this new world yet allows for these very dramatic oversights on behalf of society as a whole, especially in the realm of politics, which I think we'll get into here in a second. Yeah, well, it's kind of the idea that like anyone who watched the um, congressional hearing of Mark Zuckerberg uh, could immediately see that there were no members in Congress that had any idea how like Facebook made money or like how their marketing worked or 
how their like algorithms work in terms of their news cycle. Um, and so the, the really like disturbing thing about that is that they don't know enough about this new product to regulate it. And so they don't regulate it. And then they just allow these companies to like, in air quotes, like self-regulate themselves and hope that they have some sort of ethics. But these are like transnational companies that, you know, they're, they're about making profit. And so it seems like from their track record, they're always going to err on the side of, uh, I don't know, I guess the profit margin over the ethically right decision and their business. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't really expect anything different. I think having a face of your company like Mark Zuckerberg is for Facebook allows, even if he is fairly pretty much a robot, uh, allows this kind of humanistic aspect to creep in. I know the other day the, the House of Commons in the UK released these transcripts of kind of internal Facebook documents that showed Zuckerberg literally saying that might be good for us, but it's not good for Facebook. Mm. And quite a few people responded like incredulously to this. And sure, it's a dumb thing to say. And if you're out, like, if your outrage is like, why would he say that? That's fair. But if it's like, I can't believe he believes that, then you're incredibly naive because that's what's going on at all of these companies behind doors. Not even closed ones, apparently. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's not, maybe it's not terribly new. Like, I don't really understand how the stock market works necessarily, and yet that's regulated. But how long did it take for the, um, I guess, for us to catch up to regulate it? I don't know. Like, the the damage is, the the damage of misinformation and is kind of incalculable in some respects, as I see with, as we're kind of unraveling all of this Russian, Russian meddling, you know? And so it's like, maybe, the, maybe in the stock market, you could say a, a lack of adequate resolution regulation led to, I don't know, one quarter being, um, I don't know, disastrous for X and X group of people, but it didn't, lead to the populace <laughs> losing confidence in the democratic process. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the major problems is that unlike kind of the, the stock market, which is more neutral in terms of politics, although that could be argued against with things like uh, neoliberal policies and, and other sorts of you know more uh, free market ideologies, but social media in general, the idea that what needs to be regulated is speech and public spheres is a an issue area that m is much better suited for countries without democratic processes where crackdowns on free speech and the idea of censorship is not something that is new to the government and it's not something that needs to be debated where in the US and other older democracies the idea of regulating free speech more generally is something so so uh, opposite of just our whole culture and history and, and ideology that 
it really does present a, a bind that we have yet to figure out. And I think the best way to view it is kind of more as these companies being monopolies, but even that doesn't solve the problem of Russian meddling. It's not like they would be confused if Facebook shut down. They would just go to these other sites and, and attach themselves to these other platforms. So it's, it's, I mean, it's something that if we had the answers to, we wouldn't have our own little podcast. We would be on the news. But uh, unfortunately, nobody that I've heard has any you know, silver bullets that are going to solve this right away and produce only the goods that we thought we had in the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a couple things when... I feel like civil discourse is batted around in such a way that, like, so few people actually mean it. It's just the most... From certain people, it's just the most, like, bullshitty use of that term that I think should be treated, like, really sacredly. And I think the idea of civil discourse assumes that the person which you're having a conversation with is trying to orient the world in their best possible conceptualization of how a good world would function for a lot of people and that this extension, this argument, this like line of thinking that they're taking is actually in the best interest of people, not just on their, in their tribe or in their party, but actually for like society as a whole. And part of the reason that they are so like adamantly advocating for this one line of thinking is that, um, is that they actually do care about society in, in like a really deep, profound way. And they think that the opposition is undermining this like deeply important conceptualization. And yet, and yet, so if you, if you take that approach when you're having a conversation with someone that you disagree with and you're like, this person, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and that they are this way, not because they've been bought and paid for, not because um, they're evil, not because they're malevolent necessarily. Like it's because they're, you know, by and large trying to like create a society that's the most livable for the most amount of people. And this approach they feel like is the best one. So you're like, you're going to end up on a much different place. I think if that is the way that both people in the conversation respond rather than this person is constantly on Fox news and uh, they are just an opportunist and they don't really know what they're talking about. And they actually just kind of want to see the whole thing fall apart and laugh while they're doing it. And so like, how much of that do you think comes back to the idea that it's not face to face contact anymore on social media, that we can't see these kind of empathetic responses Humans are so designed to address these kind of facial cues and these social cues that are really absent from the online sphere. Do you think that plays a larger role than we take into account? As I, you, know, you hear it parroted as an issue, but nobody ever really seems to take it any further than that. And to me, it definitely seems like one of the primary concerns with the focus of social media and social interaction shifting to these online spaces. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like, how do you get away from that? I mean, I think that you absolutely should and can get away from it in terms of 
in your friend group, in your family, in uh, like actively seek out people that see the world from a different vantage point than you do and converse about why, like investigate why they see it that way and try to actually learn. Don't just like but, sit through it and do it. Well, the problem is that the people who are willing to go that far are not the ones that we're worried about and they're the vast minority. Right. So I guess reaching the people who aren't willing to do that, we only have at our disposal technology and technology is never going to put you really in the room. So like, I think it's a valid criticism. I think but Elon I don't Musk think that... just tisk tisked you right now. <laughs> I know. Huh? That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, well, I, I mean, even if it's VR, even if it's AR, for our generation, it's never going to feel the same. But for the next generation, you know, for Gen Z or like the one after that, it's probably going to feel the most natural thing in the world. So, I mean, I think even like my youngest brother's reality has been shaped around these technologies a lot more than me. And he's only 11 years younger than me. Right. I can only imagine even just 10 years from now, if you grew up and you have a cell phone that's access to the internet from age of, you know, 10 then your world is going to be so completely different. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that uh, what people care about on Twitter and what people care about in the real living, breathing world are so, they have such like little in common, seemingly, you know? And so it's, I think it, Feels like an, I mean, I shouldn't just limit it to Twitter, but let, let's talk about, I guess, in the political sphere, it just seems so much more uh, amplified. All of the worst aspects of this gridlock are so much more amplified in the Twitter sphere in some ways than just if you were to, I don't know, maybe go to like, actually sit in a congressional hearing and be like, well, people are, people aren't yelling at each other. Like very rarely, you know, not, not in UK parliament, but in U S Congress, like it, it's still very cordial when you're kind of like in the actual bureaucracy of it. But I just like, if you're looking at the discourse, yeah, from Twitter, both the things people care about are so momentary and so fleeting. Well, I think like the more, the bigger problem is like, even, I don't think yelling would necessarily be a sign of the decrepitness of the system. I think yelling, if you're yelling at someone in person, your reaction and your take on how they feel about the issue could be entirely different than if you hear them spewing you know, vitriolic language online. You might not take them as sincere. And I think that is part of the larger issue. But hit, let's skip back. I have some some deeper thoughts on politics and social media in particular. But did you want to play the game you had? Uh... Um, so this game is just called Guess the Tweet. So okay, so I'm gonna read a tweet, and then you have to guess who it is. And uh, feel free to participate. Yes, out there. Yes, you're driving home from a long day at work, and this is what gets you through to the next day. You. You go on and play ahead. All right. Um, okay, so first one. Millennials who make fun of my wife and I for sharing genes can go straight to hell. 
Okay, so someone who obviously doesn't associate with millennials and who wears jeans. You're really narrowing it down. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I'm talking the audience through it. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, that sounds a, sounds a lot like uh, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that the correct it's answer? It's pretty close. Rob Delaney, who's just one of my favorite... He's got to be the, just if there's a Twitter Hall of Fame, he would be in the first class of inductees. He basically got famer, famous on Twitter, didn't he? Yeah, that's like yeah. where he came from. And we should we should probably mention to the audience, even though they can probably tell by our youthful, virile voices, that we uh, fall into this category of millennials. Are you one of those people that like shrinks from that definition? Because I don't necessarily think it's. A bat, like it's used pejoratively a lot, but I don't necessarily like shrink from that. I just, I think there's a lot to be. I think our generation has a lot of problems, but I think that I don't know. There's a lot I like about it. What do you think about that term? I think, uh, I mean, any. I mean, I think baby boomers was used pejoratively when the yeah. baby boomers were young as well. I think it's just the differences between older generations and younger generations are always going to be pronounced and yeah. they're going to be accentuated in these narratives. Um, I definitely think that a lot of people that fall into our age categories, you know, early, early twenties. Should you, <laughs> that, should, should the audience, the audience can make some safe assumptions already by when, the, once they just learned just now that we're millennials, like what are some of the safe assumptions? We don't like to work. We we don't like to work. We hate um, we hate work. <laughs> we're all socialists. We're all socialists. Get even take off the democratic. I hate that term democratic. Just the socialist. No, just just, just the me. Straight uh, descents oh. of Mao and uh, <laughs> Lenin. Right. Um. We like Drake. <laughs> I mean, that's just true, though. So yeah, that one's bad. true. That one's well. I said safe assumptions. Um, it's a good way to get hits on your site when you can link millennials to a strange. Oh, we like avocado toast. That's a good one. Yeah, good that was like the. That's like the. That's that's the low hanging fruit of millennial bashing. Mm, nice work of a. <laughs> Avocado and fruit. You're very, you're very welcome. Yeah. Okay, next tweet. Um, here we go. Challenging the two parties isn't easy, but the game still surprised even me. Days before the election, a pollster puts the wrong name for me in a poll, but releases the results anyway. When it's pointed out, he magically fixes it in one night. I'm going to say that's AOC. No, this is this is a hard guess. This wasn't totally fair. Governor Gary Johnson. So you just set me up for failure over here. <laughs> Choosing obscure comedians, <laughs> third party candidates. I thought that one was a, a good segue into more of the heavy hitters. Fair enough, fair enough. You think Gary Johnson is thrilled that you just put him in with the heavy hitters? He is super <laughs> thrilled. Probably the only, probably the only reason that people would know Gary Johnson is being the guy who, on one of the talk shows, said, "And what is Aleppo?" <laughs> and yikes! 
Not a good look. Now he's on our podcast, so he's really making a comeback. Gary, if you're out there and if you ever want to be a guest, come redeem yourself, man. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, okay. As the year winds down and we look toward 2019, I'm asking you to make a commitment. Find something you want to change in your community and take the first step toward changing it. If you need some inspiration, take a look at some of the young leaders who inspired me this year. Uh, no doubt that's Kim Kardashian. <laughs> it's actually Kim Kierkegaardashian? Uh, no, that was Obama. Gotcha. I mean, they just have such equally eloquent voices that you can see how I got confused. Okay, next one. This one's all caps, but I don't want to yell. I don't have the energy for it. I'll just imagine that. Right. Imagine it in all caps. Wait, what is it? Are you angry or are you excited? Um, maybe a little both. The rigged and corrupt media is the enemy of the people. Exclamation point. I mean, I'm going to have to guess uh, the commander in chief. DJ Trump. That was about the, the calmest tweet he's ever sent out as well. Yeah. Yeah. He just called New York Times the enemy of the people, I think, yesterday. Oh, that was another one of my, but... Wow, see? But... Skipping ahead. Yeah. Jeez, you're like a, you're a mind reader. Um, <laughs> I mean, I did uh, guess the Kim Kardashian one, too. How so about this one? You could say that. Facts don't care about your feelings. Oh, who was this? That seems like... It's hard to tell without context with a lot of these. I think it plays into our, our larger narrative because that could be somebody being really mean or somebody being really factual. Um, I'm going to go with... Uh, Cory Booker. No, it's Ben Shapiro. Okay. See, I, it could have gone either way. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that error would be something Cory Becker would say. <laughs> That's true. He probably wouldn't say something that um, I have to do this one, even though it's... It, this one's more for context. The New York Times is reporting is false. Full stop. They are a true, all caps, enemy of the people. So yeah, there's your, there's your Donald Trump tweet of, of the week, which is hard to do. Right. You can collect some pretty amazing tweets. How do you? How different do you think his presidency would be if? You That's what we're going to talk about. Okay, last tweet. Last tweet. This one is a repeat. Someone who um, I've read before in this round. Okay. Oh snap! You were in there for quite a while. Chick flirting with me hard as I exit Starbucks bathroom. Yeah, that one's Rob Delaney. I'm going to guess Rob Delaney <laughs> or, or President Obama. Or Obama President wishes Obama. he was that funny, dude. Obama, here's the thing. Obama's not that funny. He's presidential. He's, pres he's oh, presidential man. funny, but the, but the bar for that's like could not be lower. Um, so, yeah, I guess to, to kind of shift to your question about um, how I think his president, I think his presidency would be a lot it would be perceived as a lot more normal if he didn't have Twitter. Because, yeah, because he wouldn't have a way of communicating unfiltered. And that's his, that's one, one of a thousand of problems of his, is him 
like, if you think about it, every other president, like, no one pays attention to White House statements that are, like, printed, you know. So there's that. Like, you could say, you could, you could, you could say that's an unfiltered approach, a White House statement. But it's like, no, it's not because no one reads them. So that doesn't work. And then you could say, what's the next step? An Associated Press, just like Newsline? Trump said this, full stop. It's like, that's still a filter. And most, most people don't read the AP. It definitely plays in to his persona. But there's also no... Unfiltered even, if, even if the most... Even if Reuters, like the most neutral-seeming news organization, is reporting a tweet that Trump said about the New York Times being the enemy of the people, you're still... Like, there's still probably some judgment that you can read into it, even if it's trying to be like, look, we're just print, we're just printing what the guy said. Like, there's still some, whereas, like, if you read a tweet from Trump, there's zero judgment because it's just him to you. I, if, you if you're, if you're someone in his base or someone who's not already judging him, you know, what you see on Twitter isn't just the echo chamber that you might be surrounding yourself mm. in, whether consciously or unconsciously. It's also the amplify, amplification of people, the most vocal people in the echo chamber. Because that's the idea of, like, you have to decide whether to retweet or like something, typically in, like, the span of a few seconds. So, of course, it's not going to be, like, a both sides, nuanced, like, complex, like, look at something... And then you probably don't want to retweet a link to an article that you haven't read because maybe you don't necessarily, maybe you're not sure if you agree with that article. So you're going to read it before and you're not going to read it and then go back and retweet it. So the stuff, of course, that always comes, comes to the fore is the most impulsive stuff. And like human behavior at its most impulsive is never the stuff that we should try to be rewarding. Right? So I think there's that, but there's also the sense that um, if you try to expand, if you try to not put yourself in an echo chamber and try to like follow a lot of people who are on the opposite side, you have the same amplification of the opposite end of the spectrum. And so you're just like, oh, like I definitely, I definitely don't agree with that. I think for people in that situation who are like, yeah, I want to expand, you know, so I'm going to follow the opposing party and some of their like political commentators. And then you just get kind of sometimes just like repulsed by it. What you're repulsed by isn't the core values of let's say the conservative party. You're repulsed by Sean Hannity, you know, <laughs> like, and, and, and Sean Hannity doesn't at this point in his career have much to do with the like George HW Bush conservative family values type uh, thing that the party's supposed to be about. And so it pushes you more to like, well, I guess my echo chamber is okay because <laughs> I saw what the other side's like and it's full of vitriol, you know, not that not like my side's full of vitriol too, but it's not in any portion, the same magnitude of vitriol. Um, and so but 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 that's not the right answer. It's just to turn back to your people. The right answer is to not necessarily be more centrist because 
I think a lot of the stuff that Bernie Sanders is doing is positive. I mean, it's not a centrist figure, but be more, I guess, empathic with, like what I talked about before, with assuming the other person is purporting this thing because they have a line of reasoning based on their background or based on what they've been exposed to that they think this is the best iteration of the world. If it's, if it's obvious that if it's not um, something that's obviously inerrant, if it's not white nationalism or something, you know? Um, And I think just being more charitable in the way that you look at that type of thing and then seeking out those voices, the like, in the case of the conservative party, the like David French's of the world or like the, you know, the people who are like, you know, this person is a, is a reasonable person. They want what's best for this country. I should pay attention to what they have to say because I might learn something. I just don't think there's any force that's like coming at this by saying like, Hey, listen to those types of people in both sides because those types of those those forces those voices would never be retweeted they don't have any influence you know so okay so there's this line of research that this kind of relates to what you're saying that shows that behavior of individuals is not right. shaped by their opinions but by what they believe the opinions of their closest social group are. So the the way that they've kind of shown this is in in Rwanda, where they have a, they have a good podcast on Hidden Brain about this specific issue and these research. Um, but they basically show that these intervention programs that they've tried to make interethnic marriage there more palatable haven't really changed opinions of people, but because they've been so widespread and so popular, they have changed what people think other people think. And this has actually changed behavior. Mm. And I think this is part of the problem with the kind of siloing of communities online. And I'm not sure how we get around this, but I think we have to identify the problems first before we can come up with adequate solutions that please both sides. Which is another problem. I don't really think it was as divisively both sides, but it has been going that way, and it just kind of picked up speed with the advent of social media and internet culture. But if your perceptions are what makes you apply specific behaviors, and all you see on your newsfeed or your Twitter feed are people supporting views that maybe to the right of you or to the left of you, then you're going to think that the people you care about, the group you associate with, has more hardline views than you. And this only further further polarizes your opinions and yeah. your behavior. And so I think this is a this is a massive problem though. I don't see anyone really trying to challenge. I think we see the blowback against social media being in areas of kind of non-censorship like the Rohingya crisis or things like Cambridge Analytica where there's fraud involved but I don't think that the narrative around these issues is correct in that it's the fraudulent aspects that we need to worry about. I think it's more the tendencies that social media in general shifts us toward that are the larger societal problem going forward. Well I just think the problem is that there are lots of individual solutions. If I 
want to approach this issue in a more nuanced way. I can find solutions for myself to, to see both sides of the issue. I think the problem is that there's no systemic solution that will affect all of those people either not willing or unable due to time constraints or whatever is going on in their lives to see both sides. And I, I do think it's almost a kind of a new sort of poverty in that it takes time to f- have this sort of nuanced look at things. And that's not necessarily new, but the idea that we've kind of created this cheapening of hot takes, this idea that we've discounted opinions in a way that creates a cost if you want to have something more than a one-sided take on things, is a problem that can't be addressed with individual solutions. I mean, if you look at... Uh, this is a, There's a terrific Atlantic article that came out last year um, about James Madison and, and social media. Essentially, his idea, he said that in, in all very numerous assemblies of whatever character is composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. His entire idea for dividing the country up in the way it was divided was to separate people so that they would have time basically to calm down and they wouldn't be able to build up mobs against specific issues without thinking them through. And that has entirely been undone with the connectivity of the modern age. And now we have these online mobs that can address things without thinking even the slightest bit through or following through on evidence in the slightest way or even just calming down emotionally. And on both sides, that's a massive I think there's way too problem. much self-censoring to try to be on the right side of history. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, I certainly do that where it's like, oh, if I'm now with this tweet, I'm now going to be on the record as thinking this thing in this moment under these circumstances. And then maybe six hours later, there's this huge revelation where it makes the thing in the context at which I said it look you know, at the, at, at the, in the best possible version, idiotic, but in the worst, like, incriminating, you know? Well, the problem is not necessarily how people interpret no. it. It's that the incriminating, <laughs> the people presiding over whether or not it should be deemed as criminal are people with very distinct agendas. And they are not impartial in any way. And, you know, the law isn't impartial either, but at least they have some systems in place that allow for some sort of impartiality. All right. So I think we should wrap this thing up, but I have a, I have a a question for you here at the end. I've decided I'm going to end every segment with Morgan's hard hitting question of the day. And so in antiquity, Democracy was developed because the republic had gotten basically gotten too big and you couldn't have direct democracy. You could have only representative democracy in Rome and those sorts of places. In the U.S., it's obviously not possible to have representative democracy or to have a, a direct republic, so we shifted to a representative democracy. With the current technology and the ability to respond individually to tweets and policy legislations, it has been floated in some quarters that we should switch back to a form of direct democracy, where individuals vote on these issues rather than representatives. Should we consider 
direct democracy in the 21st century? Eddie Matthews. Uh, my first instinct uh, to answer this is no. Uh, this... No, well, let me expand. It's about to get real hard-hitting. No, it's... um. It's the idea, I don't want to sound too elitist, but take this as a, yeah. Here, so I'll just say the thing. It's like, I don't trust the masses. I don't, like, and this is the reason why the Founding Fathers put in the Electoral College in place because they never thought that people would reach 270 electoral votes, so they thought that they could choose the president within Congress if, it, if no one got the 270 electoral votes because they were multiple parties of that system in that time. And so that's my interpretation of that history um, was the design of the Electoral College. I mean, and yeah, it was supposed to give smaller states, you know, more uh, say in the elections, and that's true as well. But it's the idea that with the, even within representative democracy, people didn't trust the masses to, like, uh, elect the correct representative, you know. And that's not necessarily an elitist thing. It's just like... I mean, shit, man, look at what we did in 2016. Like, I don't think that, I mean, obviously that's not so cut and dry, not so easy to say, but. I mean, I think that there there's, a, there's the specialization required for modern, even just economic policy and political theory is so far beyond what it used to be in kind of the Greek Republic. Even if the entire U.S. was made up of just people that were exactly like me, it would be skewed in a way where populists would be able to appeal to you know, my desires and biases and heuristics in a way that would not lead to efficient outcomes. I think right. that right. having these sorts of structural barriers to decision-making allows for more concise and cohesive long-term policies. But I also think that the way that it's been done now is too far on the other side. I think that the structural barriers provided by money and power in today's society have basically shown us that the other side doesn't work either. And it should be somewhere in between. I mean, I don't think that you would have had somebody like Donald Trump if the major political parties hadn't redone how they go about their elections to make them more democratic. But I also think you could yeah. end up with an even more corrupt system that way. So I think that one way or the other, like we were saying, without this two-double-edged sword, this sort of nuance that we provided this issue, I think that you end up with inefficient outcomes. And I think that's something that democracy has to deal with. But I do think that technology should be integrated into the political process in a way where there is more public opinion and greater integrated interests into these matters without direct control over decision-making processes, at least in real time. As I said, the emotional aspects would not be great. Yeah. Well, last thing, let me, let me pitch you on this. What if, what if, so, you know, there's a lot of, Bernie Sanders has led the charge on a lot of campaign finance reform, which I think is really positive. Huh? He's like the crazy old guy with the brook. Oh, I love his broken accent. But um, so anyways, he um, he's oh, done. So um, 
he's he's done a, like a lot of good reforms in that and just getting like i think this should be a bipartisan issue in that big money should get out of politics it corrupts like the whole system but what if we went like one step further than that or i guess like three steps further than that and that the the maximum donation one t- that every citizen can only make one donation and the maximum donation uh allowed amount would be 50 bucks and so and and campaign finance would be such that a billionaire couldn't just use all of his own money to like fill in the rest of it so it's like 50 bucks which you know maybe not every uh person in absolute poverty in America could afford that. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you could argue it should be 30 bucks or whatever, but an amount that like you can contribute once to a candidate that you support and believe in and the way that you kind of demonstrate that you've thought about these issues enough is by committing $50 to that person. Cause for most people, $50 is kind of like, it's a lot of money. When you look at 50 bucks, like in your hand, you're like, ah, oh, this is, I don't, I'm not going to like just spend this willy nilly. And so it's the idea that like you're the 50 bucks is a manifestation that you've thought more than just for two minutes about who you would give this money to, but you can't, I mean, obviously there'd be a ton of ways that people would figure out how to game the system, but in its purest form, the idea would be that you couldn't, um, yeah, give like more than once. So that would just be a one-time thing. And then the candidates, if they weren't appealing to a mass amount of people, that would be reflected in the funding that they were getting for their campaign. Have you heard of the city of Seattle and the state? I think maybe the whole state of Washington. I think it's just the city of Seattle's um, like kind of like donation credit system that they tried to implement this last election. No, I don't So it's essentially so. very similar. What they do is everyone has, possesses a, a credit that's linked to this form of taxes of state funds and they are allowed to give that credit to whichever candidate they prefer and that serves as their donation it comes and it is the candidate is able to use those funds and so this is a way of kind of making voting more inclusive at least financing and it was very fairly effective it was not super cost efficient but it was fairly effective in getting new types of candidates into the running it was not top down mm. in that it didn't limit how much you could donate other than your donation. Mm. So I think this is a separate side of the issue, but it is something that people are worried about. I do think campaign finance is something that's absolutely ridiculous. I, I think of it as more of like an antitrust issue. The Sherman Antitrust Act yeah. that helped break up all the robber barons in the early 20th century was based on the idea that capitalism can become so efficient, so effective, certain corporations that it reduces competition after a certain point of time. I think if you apply that argument yeah. to voting, it's obvious that that has become the case in politics. If you are yeah. a voter with limited funds, you have basically no impact on the election. And that should not be how it is. This is why people didn't like Hillary Clinton. And for some re- you know, for a good reason, in some respect. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Uh, it's a problem. I don't think that the solution is taxes on this ultra-rich. I think that's a start. But even the 70% marginal tax would only produce about 0.3% of the funds we, that fund the, the country through taxes. I don't think that that... I think that that is a good start. 
but I do think it's more about the influence and the power that the money can bring more so than the actual funds. Um, and yeah, it's a huge structural problem that I think we may have the chance to address. I do think that the winds are shifting that direction, but you know, the, unfortunately, the people in control of the actual systems that govern it will have to be, have it, you know, rot from their, <laughs> their hands. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We'll, we'll see how it goes. We should definitely do an episode on, on taxes and, and uh, modern socialism. I would, I would enjoy that. Yeah, okay. and I'd just like to say here at the yeah. end of the episode that if anyone who happens to be listening to this, if you made it this far, good for you. And two, please let us know if you think there's anything we can do better. Uh, reach out to us on either of our emails. Mine's just morganwack at gmail.com. Um, and we can, we'll create an email for this podcast as well. You can reach out to us there. Yeah, we're we're also on Twitter. I'm sure you all already Could saw that. the episode with that. That would have been actually. Eh, you know we 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 don't we don't want to start off with a perfect episode first. We'd have nowhere to go, no other direction. Purposely bombed this episode. So if you're thinking, "Wow, that was garbage," <laughs> just know that that was a deliberate choice. It was orchestrated. So yeah, we're on we're on Twitter at at rationalish pod. Hit us up. Cool. Thanks, Morgan. Enjoy your day, listeners. Peace.